Hello and welcome to Technically Speaking, where scientists and engineers come together to chat about a common interest, share knowledge and satisfy some curiosity. I'm Antonia and in this episode I'm joined by Ellie and Laura to talk about resurrecting extinct species, why we would do it and what the implications might be. So to start off with, Ellie, this is your area of interest. Did you read something that sort of caught your eye and bring this topic to our table? Yeah, definitely. I think in the last few years, de-extinction and this sort of idea of resurrecting extinct species has definitely come to the forefront. And I think it's A, fascinating and B, quite scary. Like this could be a possibility in the next 20, 40, 50 years of being able to resurrect something that's been dead for potentially millions of years so I think it's a really interesting topic there's definitely a lot of questions around it and a lot of controversy but it's definitely something that we should talk about and we will we'll explore all there is to it or as much as we can fit in one podcast episode (laughs) yeah definitely and we'll try and explain what de-extinction is as well because I imagine it might not be as simple as uh, as we think. Laura, you come from another background. Tell us why this topic might be of interest to you and why you wanted to talk about it today. Sure. So, I mean, Ellie's background is primarily in zoology. So I guess she's going to talk about all the animal related stuff and all the wildlife. <laughs> Always. <laughs> of course. And I think I said before in a few other episodes that I, I really like wildlife and nature. But my background, going back to my undergrad degree, was natural sciences. And I studied some geology modules, including paleontology. Oh, wow. <laughs> which is partly about how you see different creatures in the rock record and various extinction events. And my decision to study those modules was probably inspired by the Jurassic Park film from, was that the 90s? <laughs> Yeah, it's got to be. And that was all about bringing the dinosaurs back, which is what de-extinction's about, bringing a species back from the dead. Not just the dead, but just like there isn't currently one alive as well. Is that how you describe de-extinction? Like, what, what's the definition between animals just dead and actually extinct? I mean, any animal can be dead. Like, an elephant dies, it doesn't mean that the whole population is extinct. What extinction means is that there are no living animals of that species able to breed in the world. The one we're going to talk about today is the Silocene. Any dinosaur you can think of, they're all extinct. The dodo, another famous one, people love to talk about that. But also animals go extinct all the time. So it's very sad. And a lot of it is to do with what people are doing to the planet and the habitats and hunting and human animal conflict and all of that. But A species could have gone extinct 65 million years ago, or it could have gone extinct 65 years ago. So it's really a big time span that we're talking about, which is another thing that we're going to bring into this about how far back could we realistically resurrect an animal. I've also heard about species being effectively extinct, even though there are still some which are alive of that species. Can you explain that a little? Yes. So basically, if you have a few individuals left, You could technically breed them, perhaps, but you might have all boys. So then, yes, you've got individuals that species, but functionally, you're not going to have any more offspring because there's no female to carry a fetus or, you know, there's no way that you can produce more more of that species. So you can have still animals alive. It doesn't mean that necessarily all the animals of that species are dead, but if there's no way to bring more 
into the world, then that species is going to go extinct even quicker than all the rest of them, unfortunately. I know there's a threatened species scale as well. So like, is it extinct if we have some in captivity? And the only reason why they're still alive? Is it extinct if we have some in captivity? Probably not, realistically. You can have it extinct in the wild, which is another category. If you go on the IUCN, they have all, as many, well, not all the animals, but a good majority of the animals listed and each animal species will be given a category from least concern or data deficient all the way to critically endangered and these categories break down how many are left how the environment is impacting the survival of these species what the threats are to these species what can be done as well like conservation strategies to preserve the areas that they live in preserve the habitats preserve the individuals um so yeah if it's in a zoo it could be that there's many animals of that species in the wild as well, or it could be that the only animals now remain in captivity because that's the safest place for them to be because their habitat's been destroyed. So, yeah, it can go both ways. That scale you were talking about, when they're sort of most concerned, isn't that when there's been a really rapid decline in populations in the wild, I guess, and it suggests they may go extinct because there's been some change in the habitat that means they can't thrive anymore. And if something isn't done, then they will eventually, they're likely to become extinct. Yeah, quite a lot of the ones that end up as critically endangered are species that will only live in one place. So if you've got a population of something like a Bermuda skink, it only lives on one island off the coast of Bermuda with, I don't know, two or 300 individuals. So if there's a huge infestation of rats or if there's a Bermuda skink disease that could wipe out that whole population in one fell swoop and then that species would be extinct so there's all different categories within those classifications to work out like how vulnerable they are to extinction. You talked about the um, the thylacine I find that quite difficult to pronounce Tasmanian tiger. (laughs) Tasmanian tiger (laughs) yes so that was a species that in about the 1800s There were about, I think, about 5,000 roaming around Tasmania off the coast of Australia. And basically, they were hunted to extinction. They decided to put a bounty. I think you got like a dollar or the equivalent at the time for every thylacine body or carcass that you brought into the authorities. So, of course, as soon as people realised they can make money, as with the way of a lot of things, it just became, you know, a sport almost to shoot as many as you could. And they had one left in a zoo called Benjamin with one animal you can't really do very much so yeah as when he passed away the the species was declared fully extinct which was very recently only in the last hundred years it was 1936 that Benjamin died so not really that long ago no so they were they quite widespread before the 1930s yeah did they exist in more than just Tasmania I think Tasmania and maybe southern Australia Ah, okay but yeah, like fairly common, I would say. Why was there a bounty on there for Tasmanian tigers? People semi-mistakenly believe that Tasmanian tigers killed sheep and other livestock. So that's sort of where it started. That they all shot them to protect the livestock. Ah, so people said they're a threat to our way of life. So we'll wipe them out before they wipe us out. It's like wolves in England. Like why people are so anti bringing them back because they think they'll be such a threat to sheep and cows and farmers' livelihoods and all of that sort of thing. So... You can see where they were coming from, but I don't think slaughtering all of them 
was necessarily the best thing that they could have done in that situation. Oh, now I'm thinking at how if they were widespread to begin with and then they became less and less common as their numbers depleted, how did they find the last few or did the last few somehow succumb to something else? Was there more than just human hunting strategies going on? Well, so this is the thing as well. So the thylacine Tasmanian tiger is one of those things that like crops up and like every five or six years, there'll be someone that's claimed to have seen one that's still alive today in Tasmania. And it's like the sort of, I don't know, yeti of the uh, animal world. And there's some people that believe that there still is a small population living in the forests of Tasmania. But I do highly doubt that. I think they did. They were all wiped out. But it's the same as I said before, if you're wiping out quite a lot and you've only got a few individuals left, the chances of them then meeting and being able to breed and that offspring surviving is then so much lower. So for the population to recover, then it takes a long time. So it might be that they wiped out so many that the population just couldn't manage to bounce back. So why is there the conversation about bringing them back? How, how would they do that? And then second would be, how would they survive? Would we have changed too much that they wouldn't have the sheep and livestock to keep them alive if that was what was kept them alive? <laughs> Well, how is the big question? Because basically this started because people sequenced the genome of the thylacine. So from Benjamin, that specimen that died, they had his DNA, I believe, and they they sequenced it. So they have the entire genome, but they don't obviously have any living thylacines. So when you say sequence the genome, let's go back another step, which is they've got a copy of the DNA and they've basically written it all out. Yeah. And they know exactly what it would look like. So how, how did they do that? Did they have a live sample or a real sample of the DNA to start with? Or did they sort of predict it with some deductions and understanding of the species? So in 2018, the genome sequence of the thylacine was produced, published, I suppose. And it was using the DNA from a pouch specimen. So thylacines are marsupials. We should probably mention that. And a pouch specimen was stored at Melbourne Zoo in alcohol for 100 years. So they're not actually tigers. They're not actually tigers. They're not felids. <laughs> they're not cats. <laughs> they're just stripey. They're just stripey marsupials with four legs. Right. They look a little bit like cats, a little bit like dogs. Look them up because they're quite cool looking. Um, and they're not that big. They're sort of like the size of a coyote. Like I've seen a coyote in real life before. <laughs> Compare it to my dog. My dog's like the size of a big cat. How does oh. that compare? Big, bigger than your dog, okay, but smaller than a wolf. Right. <laughs> Thank you. Sorry, I interrupted then. So they're marsupials. So there's an animal that they thought, hey, this looks like a tiger, but actually it's more like a kangaroo. <laughs> <laughs> Thylacines are marsupials, which kangaroos are also marsupials. But all that means really is that they're sort of mammals. And instead of giving birth to live young in the same way, like a kangaroo has a pouch and they're like, the fetus will crawl from the birth canal into the pouch and then suckle. And then when it's developed more, you'll see the head of the joey popping out of the pouch of the kangaroo. It's like that sort of uh, thing. The, the breeding mechanism is slightly different to a traditional live birth of a mammal. I just thought that they went back in there for safekeeping. I didn't realise that was how they were born and that was their, that was basically their nest. Yeah, essentially. It's like a, I guess, an outer womb is one way to describe it. Like like a human baby is inside the mother's uterus the whole time until it gets born. Whereas a kangaroo baby will be very, very underdeveloped and will crawl from the birth canal into the pouch and then stay there suckling 
from drinking milk for a long time. So they still drink milk, it's still quite mammalian, but then only much, much later on will they then emerge into the real world. So the idea of a fetus crawling around on the outside sounds really creepy, but also sounds like it makes more evolutionary sense because childbirth is really risky in humans. So they've still got to look after it for quite a long time, but it's developing out of the womb more than like a human child or an elephant child. Elephant child, elephant calf. (laughs) (laughs) So they managed to sequence the genome. What happens next? Are they going to find a host not a host what's what's the right word for this like how how do you get from a genome to actually having a living thing essentially they are still trying to improve the genome by sequencing as many closely related species that are still alive as they can and one of them is the dunnart which is also a marsupial which is like a little mouse and basically they're like semi-Jurassic parking it in a way (laughs) so they're altering as much of the genes that they can and they're gonna like develop this using an embryo so they're taking stem cells and they're going to try and persuade them to become thylacine stem cells and then they're going to put it into an empty Dunart egg and then they're going to put the egg in the host. And would that be a mouse? So they're not going to put the embryo into a donut because I think that would be too small. So, but per se, they put it into like a female dog or a female coyote. But then because the offspring of a marsupial is so underdeveloped when it's born, they would then take that underdeveloped creature and they would have to hand rear it Um or get it to be fostered by a marsupial. So it could go back and forth. Like there's a lot of factors that where it could all go, <laughs> or where they could lose the, the fetus because it's so complicated, because it's never been done and because we don't have any thylacines to be able to put it into. So it's not like, like in horse breeding, they do it all the time where they take the embryo from like a very expensive female racehorse and they'll put it with the semen of a very expensive male racehorse and then they'll put that embryo into a surrogate to like grow the foal so that the racehorses can keep racing. But we can't do that in this case because we have no thylacines. So we'd have to find the next best option. But also we don't have any thylacine sperm or any of that. So like it's a lot of factors, which is why they're trying to grow stem cells into thylacine cells, which has never been done before. So yeah, very complicated procedure. So were you talking about improving the map of the thylacine genome that they currently have by comparing it to other animals? Yes. So how will they know for certain that they've got the correct genome for a thylacine and that what they produce would actually be a thylacine? So it won't be a thylacine. That's the thing. It will be this approximation of a thylacine. So it's not necessarily resurrecting an extinct species it's your best guess of what it was like so it could potentially be just creating a new species well yeah i suppose so because it will be i don't know 98 percent thylacine and two percent dunart so yeah it won't be a hundred percent thylacine dna but it will be as close as they can get it well that's what they're trying to do anyway how much of a species do you have to have before it starts becoming a new species you know because what if some of that, that 2% was a really insignificant 2% and doesn't actually present outwardly and it's instead just kind of some background stuff that all the marsupials share, so it's nothing major? Maybe it could still be effectively a, a thylacine. Well, do you think, like, how much DNA, like, 
chimps and humans share like it's so high but then obviously we look and behave and act incredibly differently so I've no idea is the answer really but they this is the best sort of chance that they've got to to make it happen say they manage to make one and it successfully gestates and comes to term and grows up to be an adult then what are they going to keep doing this until they've created a million thylacines and got a whole new population or what well so that's the other thing so let's say that they could do it let's say that they could bring back the thylacine to as close a version as they could manage then you've got the issue of well what happens then what are we going to do with it are we going to release it back into the wild are we going to keep it in a lab and study it forever or as long as it lives and this is where a lot of these ethical and moral questions come in like should we even attempt to do this is all we're going to do is bring back one individual that's then going to be, you know, kept in a cage for its whole life and die, you know, not really having achieved very much, only having achieved being itself. And what kind of quality of life is that for an individual? And if we truly want to de-extinct species, should we not bring back the entire population or as many as we can so that in theory they could be released into the wild and form a self-sustaining population? The problem with that is the animals have gone extinct. So why did they go extinct? What were those threats that led them to that point? And if it was loss of habitat, have we even got the habitat to release them back into? Or if it was hunting, are people still going to hunt them once they come back? Are they going to attack the sheep? Are they going to upset the farmers? There's all these factors to consider. And the habitat has changed. Like, I don't know that much about Tasmania, but I'm pretty sure it doesn't look the same as it looked in the 1800s than it does in 2022. So is there even the space for a thylacine to roam around and hunt? And are the species that it hunted still around? Will it have anything to eat? What are they going to feed it? There's all these questions. So yeah, we don't don't know. This is sort of the sort of um, opposing views. Like there's lots of people that believe that we should be trying to de-extinct species and to see what will come of it. And there's lots of people saying, no, this is a waste of resources and all this money that you're investing in these genetic technologies is better spent conserving the species that are still going and protecting the areas and the habitat that we have for those. So there's, there's a lot of toing and froing and a lot of flip, lines, flip sides to each argument. But in the meantime, they are still at least sequencing genomes. Yeah, so there's this lab. It's called, you'll like this, the Silocene integrated genomic restoration research lab at the university of melbourne and the acronym is tiger which i think is good no e double r so they really thought about that even though it's not actually a tiger (laughs) (laughs) even though it's not actually a tiger yeah so where is the thylacine in in the sort of food chain as well if if we did bring it back how would it impact other species would it cause other species to go extinct and then we'd kind of be in this in this cycle like you know what if it affects biodiversity in another way yes it was a carnivore and it was one of australia's only apex predators when it was alive so yeah it would definitely impact the habitat there's no doubt about it it would eat species it would it would cause a lot of um repercussions if it were reintroduced into australia which you said in a previous episode has a problem with rabbits as an invasive species 
maybe it would balance out. <laughs> Similar in the UK, right? We had wolves and all the wolves were made extinct for the same reasons, because they predated on sheep too often, apparently. So if the wolves were still here, maybe there wouldn't be so many rabbits, which wouldn't be a problem for crops. Maybe the same would be true in Australia. <laughs> Bringing back the thylacine as a form of invasive species control. I like it. Humans haven't managed it. Maybe the thylacine will. But in theory, when did we say that the rabbits were brought to Australia? That was like Victorian era, wasn't it? That maybe potentially there was no overlap, right? So the thylacine went extinct. Oh, that was much later there. So they would potentially have seen a rabbit. Like, would it have known to hunt that? It probably would have, I think. So what is the main benefit of de-extinction? Is it just righting a wrong that they were hunted to extinction? Or could there be wider benefits? What if it was a different species that actually, yeah, could have this kind of benefit of solving another ecological issue that we have. Well, also people are saying it's sort of not necessarily even doing it to bring back the thylacine. It's doing it to prove that we can use this genetic technology and methods to edit the DNA of stem cells and then turn those stem cells back into an animal. So the process of bringing back a thylacine will have these offshoots of huge advances in genetic technology that then could be used to bring back animals, but also used to gene therapy for mutations in health and cancer and all of those sorts of things. So in theory, we don't know what will come of it, but if you're going to spend a lot of money researching the manipulation of these stem cells and this genetic idea, then you could you know, find out a lot of different things in the process. So if I put my academics hat on, to me, this sounds like someone really wanted to do some genetics research, was struggling to find funding, so came up with what sounds like a really cool application so they could actually just get some funding. And all they really want to know is more about genetics, and they don't necessarily have much of an interest in righting a wrong of humans eradicating a species. I don't know if that sounds really cynical. I mean, you could well be right. People can only do the research if they've got the money. So if you've got a, you know, a sexy title and a snazzy idea, let's bring back something that's extinct. Of course, people are going to be on board. And I think there was a grant or someone, there's like a company behind it that are getting lots of funding from people that want to see this species. But whether that's their main goal or whether they want to explore what they can do with stem cells is maybe a bit ambiguous. I don't know. But I think, yeah, you can only do what you've got money for, can't you, in the academic world. But what makes the thylacine a good candidate? It's not as exciting. So maybe this is why I've answered my own question. But wasn't the... Uh, the messenger pigeon also from around the same time that it went extinct. Why are we not bringing that back? Is that lot a little bit more similar to carrier pigeons? Carrier pigeons, why aren't we bringing those ones back? Because they're quite similar to species still alive. So wouldn't that be easier if we just wanted to prove this kind of technology? I imagine probably yes in the theory in fact that pigeons like there's an approximation of a pigeon of a carrier pigeon still going right so you've got probably what's more likely as a host probably got more similar dna that you could work with but i think yeah there's is something about it that's got to be like mass appeal or mass like public interest and this is why like conservation groups struggle people like cute and cuddly pandas get billions of pounds of conservation money but if you're trying to conserve like one small snail that lives in a muddy puddle in, you know, the Outer Hebrides, like it's not it's not sexy in the same way. So I think there's definitely an argument that people care less about things that are still going or it's less important to them, maybe. Whereas a thylacine is a 
snazzy looking creature people have sort of heard of it it comes back into pop culture every now and then because people claim they've seen it it's got a bit more mystery and a bit more I don't know a bit more wow factor perhaps yeah I'm going to play the cynical academic again and say they'd started off pitching it will bring back pigeons (laughs) (laughs) and no one was interested and everyone was like nah I can't be bothered we've got loads yeah we'll try something else then but I mean pandas how much effort should you put into conserving something that doesn't really seem like it fits in the world ever (laughs) it doesn't put much effort into conserving its own like species yeah that's true i mean pandas breed like epically slowly which is part of the reason they were in such trouble in the first place but it's so hard to know what's valid like if we could do it if we could bring something back you know i know people are trying but if it was possible how would you pick how would you decide and even should you in the first place when you know a lot of the habitat is being lost shouldn't you put the money into conserving that those spaces so that's much much more important and keeping the species that we have that there's so many critically endangered species and it's only getting worse with the more that i mean the world population is now eight billion and like people have to live and work and farm and we need food for all these people you know that comes at a cost and the cost is land and space an industry. There was a fact that came from the IPCC about climate change causing extinction and about how many thousands of species we've lost since, you know, we started recording it compared to other years. And it's just rapidly increased. And I didn't even know there were that many species to begin with. <laughs> I guess a lot of that is stuff like insects and invertebrates and things you probably don't really think about that are going extinct. But I mean, to pick up on what Ellie was saying about conserving habitat, if no one seems that interested in actually making an effort to solve climate change, which seems to be what's happening with the outcome of COP26, then is it really worth expending that effort to try and conserve environments now? Or is it better to put that effort into making a better future, like 20, 30, 40 years down the line, once we've figured out how we stabilise the climate or not, or has human population growth stabilised? Maybe it's better to develop that technology, playing devil's advocate here, because I would rather see environments protected now. I completely agree. I would much rather see people putting in a concerted effort and governments, you know, actually doing something about climate change and habitat loss and all of these things now, rather than invest all this money in bringing back species that have been gone. I mean, the thylacine is 100 years, so maybe, maybe that's worth it, perhaps, but bringing back a mammoth or a dodo like what benefit does that have other than sort of a vanity project and there's nowhere for it to live you know it's only gonna it's only gonna go extinct again whereas we could protect huge swathes of natural environment which would then in turn protect thousands of species and the conservation would be so much more beneficial and also trees and plants and fungi and everything else doesn't just have to be the big snazzy marsupials and the mammals that people are interested in. Birds, fish. No, it kind of sounds like we're saying things are picked based on how cute and fuzzy or how sexy they are. And maybe the criteria should be on how does this actually help the environment? It should be a more more scientific way of looking at it. I mean, climate change is making species go extinct. There is That is the truth. There is no hiding that. And without remedying something we're just going to lose more and more species it's just the way that the the world is going so yeah it seems the extinction seems a bit too far ahead you know if we had lots of stable habitat 
And, you know, we'd sorted out climate change to the point where it wasn't so bad or the implications wouldn't be so awful. And it, the climate wasn't rapidly accelerating and it wasn't 40 degrees in England in August. You know, you could then think, OK, maybe I'll, I'll give this a try. But at the moment, things are in crisis. We can't really afford to, you know, mess around with DNA when everything is is dying as it is. Hmm. But then to counteract my own argument about protecting habitats, going back to my geology background, there have been mass extinctions in the past and they predated any sort of human activity, a lot of them. And the world has survived. It's been, they look different, but this wouldn't be the first time lots of things have gone extinct. I suppose it's one of those where did it happen naturally or did it happen because of human activity? And that's what I want to retcon a little about what I said it's actually habitat loss and that's from deforestation and other habitat loss. And so it's not just climate change. It's just humans being on the earth and taking up a lot of space, I guess. It kind of goes back to our space travel conversation, whether we should endeavour into, into space and explore it or should we try and solve problems on earth first? So it's almost like, are we planning for the future or for vanity <laughs> or, or should we be um, planning for now and trying to solve problems now have we done anything like this have we have we managed to you know bring a yeah obviously not quite bringing an extinct species back to life and apart from reanimating it in jurassic park have we done anything like this in real life (laughs) so there's examples of a species that have undergone severe population crashes that have then had a lot of human intervention to breed them back to like you know bigger levels, higher population numbers. So I think um, I think it's called like the Mauritius kestrel. I'm trying to remember now, but basically there's populations of animals that have crashed to, you know, eight individuals, nine individuals, and then have been brought back through conservation methods and, you know, heavily managed processes and programs to bring back those individuals. So yeah, in theory, we have done it for living species but we've never done it for something that's been like actually extinct all members all members dead yeah no i guess a a similar thing we were talking about rewilding as well weren't we so bringing beavers back to england is another example of this is an area where species a species used to be here not so long ago and that environment still exists for them that evolutionary niche hasn't yet been filled so we could bring beavers from elsewhere and grow that population I do wonder though, did they bring, was it like five beavers or something somewhere down south? Yeah, Devon, I think. Devon or Dorset, they have beavers now. Is that enough to ensure genetic diversity or how important is genetic diversity to ensure this, the growth and survival of a species? In short, we don't really know. Basically, when I was a zoology undergrad, we got told there's like a spiral. So you have, you know, decreasing population is like the start of the spiral and then it gets all the way down, and then the genetic diversity is only nine or eight or whatever, but you can breed them back. And in theory, they will all be horrifically inbred, like their genetics will be so close that it would, in theory, cause problems in genetic mutations, but it doesn't necessarily always happen that way. So, yeah, I don't know so much about it, but from what I was told, it's bad, but it's not so bad that it can't work sometimes if that makes sense i feel like 
Emma's background, Emma's physicist that sometimes appears on this uh, podcast, and her interest is in biophysics. And she mentioned something about genetics and nonlinearity in the, the multiverse episode. And I think that was something to do with a small change in genetics can have a big change in the animal that is made. So you could have a little tiny bit of genetic variation and that would be enough to make the species evolve i think but she can probably explain it better than i can but i did wonder if that played a part in this that was something i was thinking about was i was reading about how you know purebred dogs and they get pedigrees and they start getting hereditary diseases vets have been advocating for actually trying to mix the breeding a bit to reduce that chance and they've been successful with sort of like golden retrievers and those type of dogs oh obviously we have a bigger sample size or even we have a bigger population but maybe, yeah, matching genome sequencing with a little bit of randomness from physics. Do you think maybe <laughs> you take them enough that they won't be clones of each other? It's been done. Like, it is possible. There's there's living proof that you can have a small population and breed them so much that you can get a much bigger population. And those animals are still breeding and they're living and in theory that they're not suffering from you know genetic mutations or those problems that you see in um like pugs and things like that when their noses are so squished in and they can't breathe but i think also that is breeding for traits as well so people have bred those dogs to look like that on purpose when in an animal context in a wildlife context you're breeding just to have numbers so you're not trying to select for you know longer antlers or shinier hooves or or any of that sort of thing so maybe that's part of it. But yeah, I don't know. It is an interesting one. I can't remember what that spiral is called and it's driving me mad. But if there's any zoology students listening, you'll know. I want to say death spiral, but <laughs> I'm not a zoology student. It's probably not right. It might be the extinction spiral. I, I, I'll have to look it up after. I feel like that is quite a compelling reason to do the research, though, to figure out more about genetics on that level. Yeah, absolutely. We don't know what we don't know, right? So, And we don't know what we'll learn. We can only learn more. Yeah. So we've gone back from saying we shouldn't de-extinct it to going back to, yeah, might as well try, see see what we learn. So are we back on the, you know, we're concerned about whether we can and uh, not whether we should? Is that a Jurassic Park reference? <laughs> <laughs> I've been waiting for that all episode. What was the name of Jeff Goldblum's character? Because I always think it's Jeff Goldblum, but that doesn't really make sense. But it was his character that said scientists were so preoccupied whether they whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should when they created these um, dinosaurs that started to breed because they filled in the genetic material with frog DNA that can spontaneously change sex. <laughs> but that's the thing, isn't it? Like that's the that's the implication. Maybe not quite as uh, as far as that, but yeah, if you're filling in DNA with bits of things, how much is it even the species that you're trying to be extinct? Yeah, and if we don't know what we're going to get, because we've, we've already said we don't know exactly what we're going to find out, should we do it? I like how we're just flip-flopping back and forth. We're not going to come to a conclusion, are we? <laughs> <laughs> well, I entered this podcast thinking I'm definitely against bringing back the thylacine and the extinction, and I still think I am, but I would like to see what comes of it, because my opinion is not going to influence the Tiger Research Centre, so... Give it 50 years and let's see what they've discovered. What about you, Laura? Have you have you settled on a... I haven't. I, I really haven't. The research scientist in me says, yes, do this research because we don't know what we'll learn. 
but then the practical nature lover in me says don't do it because you should be conserving habitats i guess the question to ask is how much money is being spent on that research and what else could it be used to do and how much of a tangible benefit would that have would that make any more of a difference or is it just like a drop in the ocean? Should we look at tangible benefit when it comes to nature and biodiversity? Is that something we should measure in that sense of like how much monetary benefit will we get from it or how many species will we get back? Because what if that one species was actually really valuable? Yeah, again, this is this is what I don't really know. I guess it's one of those things you'd have to just try it and see so that the the conservationists are in pretty much the same boat as the geneticists in that case. We don't have all the answers, so keep doing the research. <laughs> if it helps you to put a figure on it, the uh, Tiger Lab was given a $3.6 million donation to start with. Whether they've since received more donations, I'm sure, but that was the initial point. So it's not really that much in terms of... In research budgets, no. No. Is that US dollars, I guess? Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure the FBI as well was involved at one point. There's like an FBI like subset that invested money in this. Oh, and that can't have been just to bring back thylacines. That must have been something to do with genetic material to solve crimes. Yeah, I think they were mainly interested in how far the technology could go rather than any like investment in bringing back a thylacine or a mammoth or a dodo or anything like that. Be loads of benefits to society whether or not we agree with them you know we don't know could actually be very good for crime investigation bring back tigers they will solve crime <laughs> <laughs> that should be the tagline of the tiger lab <laughs> crime solving tigers <laughs> that aren't actually tigers exactly tiger in disguise marsupial in disguise oh it's not the fbi it's the cia the cia are investing in mammal uh, mammoth resurrection technology. So there you go. Oh, and I think we all decided we're against resurrecting the mammoths because there isn't a suitable habitat for them, really. They existed in, like, glaciations, so it should be really cold for them. And that is not what climate models are predicting. <laughs> yeah, but I think, yeah, there is the same principle. They did it not to have a mammoth living, but to see see what the technology could be, be achieved. I think that sounds like a good place to leave it. We've kind of gone all around what is extinction, what is de-extinction, and what benefits, if there are benefits, or what do we not know about it? I hope everyone enjoyed this conversation. It's been fascinating and also very weird. <laughs> yeah, I hope people enjoyed this episode. I know it's gone to some weird and wonderful places, and I can't wait to have another one like this in a few weeks' time. So if you also want to get involved and share some strange ideas about whether or not we should de-extinct animals, if you have a recommendation of a <laughs> an animal species to bring back, then uh, you can find us on Twitter. I hate saying that, actually, because now Twitter's gone to the Elon Musk camp. People can find us other places. Yeah. We're around. If you find something interesting to share with us, you can find us somehow, somewhere on the internet. Um, we look forward to hearing from you. The views expressed in this podcast belong entirely to the person that said them. They do not represent any industry or organisation. If you enjoyed listening to these views, it would really help us out if you could rate us, leave a review and tell a friend. This podcast was sponsored by no one, but if you're interested in funding us to continue to have frank discussions about science and engineering, please get in touch.